The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today as we take a technical look at the markets and at the week ahead in stocks. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison and Frank Capillary, founder and president of Cap Thesis, an independent research firm. Welcome, Frank and Ben. I am looking forward to today's discussion. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Lauren. So, Frank, we'll start with technical analysis. It's a useful tool for reading markets. Ben and I are fond of it, but many people don't really know what it is. So, I thought I'd start by asking you to give us a brief definition before we put technical analysis into practice. Sure. Well, let me just say just thank you very much for having me. I'm a long-term subscriber, and it's a real honor to be able to contribute to this oh, content. Thank you for subscribing. Oh, yeah. Very welcome. So the way I like to look at this is this just a graphical representation of supply and demand. Here's about supply and demand all the time. We know what happens when inflation comes into the picture, and really... I would like to think of it as anything that has a price can be charted. Anything has a charted can be basically have technical analysis applied to it. Now, it, technical analysis, of course, is a very broad term, right? And people use it different ways. And, you know, when going through the CMT process, which is a three-year test, kind of like the CFA exam, you learn all different things. But That's like, certified market technician? That is correct. That okay. is correct. And it's very broad, but what it allows you to do is kind of focus in on things that make sense to you and use it that way. And if you read about any, you know, there's so many trading and investing books out there, we know that um, traders can be successful in many different ways. So using something that is useful to you uh, specifically is, you know, shouldn't be discarded because that's important. And so the way it works that way in terms of looking at it of, on charts with stocks it's important to realize many times that stocks do not behave like their company sometimes. And we see that, especially in emotional type markets, especially like last year, right? Where fundamentals for the most part didn't matter, where, where technicals really helped in terms of most importantly, manage risk. And that's why I think it's most useful. All right. So now let's get down to business and talk about the S&P 500. It had a splendid January but it suffered a 1% setback last week. Today, people are buying the dip, and some notable strategists on Wall Street have made the case for a sideways market this year. It's a little too soon to tell, but I wonder if that corresponds with your technical view of the S&P. Right. The way I look at the market is that it could be in one of three phases at any time, <clears throat> uptrend, downtrend, and a sideways market, like, like you just mentioned. And the way I, I kind of come to that conclusion is looking at the collection of chart patterns within the S&P 500. So needless to say, if you're in an uptrend, most of the time bear or bullish chart formations will work out, meaning per the term sometimes of cup and candle, inverse head and shoulders patterns. You don't even have to get that specific though. If bottoming formations end up working, resistance, you know, 
when you see a breakout through resistance, those work, it's an uptrend, vice versa for a downtrend. And so last year, needless to say, a lot of times it was very difficult to identify bullish formations that worked out where bearish patterns did. And I would say that things have switched in that sense. And we know that we bottomed out um, in last October, but since then, there's been foundations being made both in the S&P 500 and many other spots. And I would say this, just as a, a very broad observation, that the collection of bullish patterns within the marketplace in general are the most we've seen since the beginning of the 2020 comeback, right? And that's across the group, globe. So a lot of had to happen for that to occur. But most, most importantly, market had to stop going down. Then we see some, you know, some bases being made and now some breakout attempts being uh, attempted here. And so looking at the S&P 500 itself, there are a number of different variations of this based on different time frames that you look at, but I was talk about one of them. And so if I look at the market from say the uh, early September um, dip there and take it all the way through to current day, that could be classified as one potential very big bottom information, right? And the way I look at patterns like that is you look at the height of the pattern that um, was formed to get to this point, and a very simple measured move from a potential breakout point would then give you an upside target. So if this were to work out in that sense, it would get us all the way back to 4,700. Now, that's not saying it's going to happen next week or if at all, but these are the types of things that can play out where you have small bullish formations start to form. They have their upside targets hit. And at that point, bigger bases that can be formed. And that's how you get from a, a down market from last year to a basing pattern to a mature uptrend. So in terms of best case scenario, that is how that could play out. Well, I'm going to allow myself to feel optimistic at last <laughs> after hearing that. So I want to bring Ben into the conversation with a look at this week's consumer price index for January. It's going to be released tomorrow. As we know, inflation has been running hot for the past year, though it has come down in recent months. And a critical data point for the Fed is the CPI reading. The Fed meets again in March to set interest rate policy. Everybody will be watching tomorrow's report. Ben, what is the consensus estimate for CPI? Um, well, so CPI is supposed to come in at 6.2% uh, year over year. That'd be down uh, from 6.5%. But on a month over month basis, um, it's supposed to rise 0.5%. Uh, and that'd be a faster rate than 0.1% uh, in the previous month. But we all know that the Fed really isn't watching headline CPI right now. Um, it's, it's looking at uh, core um, inflation. And there you're supposed to see... Um, inflation dropped 5.4%. Core would strip out uh, uh, energy and food. Um, and um, that would drop 5.4% to 5.7% and remain steady on a month over month basis at 0.4%. Um, the, the one thing I would, would say here is that, um, you know, I was reading a note this morning from a firm called Quant Insight, which uh, it's really, as its name would suggest, a, a quantitative firm. They were noting that uh, inflation expectations are rising, and that's based on inflation swaps. Um, and so there's a, a little what bit is of, an inflation swap. Oh, this is just uh, another one of those tools that uh, Wall Street uses to hedge risks and place bets on outcomes for, for different readings. So it's a way to price in uh, inflation. Um, a swap is a contract that uh, you um, pay for something now in exchange for providing again in the future. And it's a way to end up betting on um, on the direction of some of these numbers. Um, and so they, they say that those are pricing in um, a, a beat, you know, rising expectations. Um, and if they're right, uh, it could be, um, you know, they see 
see two ETFs that are um, could really benefit from that. One would be OIH, that's an oil services uh, ETF, and the other is XME, which is a um, uh, metals and mining ETF. Um, but uh, we know that we've been getting this downward trend in inflation, and it, it could be that uh, you know if we don't get an, an upward surprise, that we do get the resumption of this rally that uh, Frank was talking about. That uh, these numbers so far this year have been quite a, a, a positive catalyst uh, for the for the stock market. Uh, they, they've helped uh, push it higher. The data hasn't been uh, scary when it gets released. Um, and so the market's been able to use it to push higher. And so we'll see um, maybe the um, inflation swaps are wrong and the, the number turns out to be benign. Well, an upward trend in inflation is not what the Fed wants to see. Not at all. For sure. So, Frank, in your morning trends email today, you wrote that a lot will be writing on how the S&P reacts to the January CPI report. What are you going to be looking for? Well, thanks, Lauren. Well, I think it's going to be important because the way I think about this is you get these knee-jerk reactions to reports all the time, especially now and especially for the CPI. I think it's going to be more important to see what the market does after digesting this. And I've been looking at this in a two-week window. Because well, at that time, you know, the, the initial things come out. If they have to put Fed governors out and speaking, that happens as well. And you get an idea of really what the market thinks about it. So what I think is interesting is that with any one of these news items, it's much more important to see the reaction, right? And so on that chart from the, uh, the Capitalism the Morning Trend piece, I try to identify this. And so one trend that we could see change over last year was that in the CPI reports, for the first seven out of nine months um, that they came out, the market was lower two weeks later, seven out of nine times, as I just mentioned, right? And since that point, so that basically goes from January to September. From October through January now, the market has been higher three out of those four times, right? And so it all kind of plays into the same thing where maybe the sentiment got so bad, right, to the point where we didn't even need to see a good reading coming out of this, as was the case on uh, on, thir- on October 13th, the low, right? It was that huge reversal right before then we saw any indication of change in inflation and the market took off. So now it's going to be important because as we get more of these inflation readings come out, the market has been higher, right? And so higher prices, at least through last year, have not been really uh, something to encourage buyers to come in. So that's another part of this whole scenario was that we know that, you know, people or traders have, recency bias, meaning that remember what happened when everyone bought from the low and then sold off a few weeks after that, right? If that mindset now changes where you have the desire to continue to put demand into the system at higher prices as these bullish patterns tend to complete themselves with you know supportive data, then you can see how all that could work out. So again, I think it's going to be important to see how this how this looks, say, two weeks from now. All right. One thing I'm curious about, the 10-year Treasury yield has been rising. It was 3.73% this morning. What's the technical setup for the 10-year? Well, I would say that, you know, like right now is the reverse of the S&P 500. You can say that the dollar, of course, looks like the 10-year as well. And so because the 10-year has come off so much, a little rally like this could be the beginning stages of something. We don't know right now, right? Just like the pullback we saw from the S&P last week. Right. If these trends that started to change, say, three months ago, four months ago, remain in place, then the moves that we saw last week would just be small moves within these larger movements. So needless to say, I can't see 
a scenario where the 10 year yield goes back to where it was last fall along with the dollar and the S&P staying where it is. Interesting. But I asked that one. Um, <laughs> so now we're going to move on to earnings. As regular listeners know, Ben and I always devote a portion of the Monday call to coming earnings announcements. Today, we'll talk about some of the companies reporting this week, and I'll ask Frank to share some of his thoughts on the stocks. I wanted to remind listeners we'll take questions at the end of the call, so please type in your questions as we're talking. Ben, before we get down to business and take a look at companies, I wanted to get your thoughts on fourth quarter earnings season overall. My understanding is it has not been a terribly uplifting season. No, not at all. Actually, Credit Suisse uh, had a note out this morning where they called it the worst non-recessionary earnings season in 24 years. And that's yeah. not based on the fact that earnings um, are expect to actually decline this quarter. Uh, by Right now, they're pacing for about 2.2% um, decline based uh, largely because of weak margins. But because of how much estimates have fallen, um, since uh, the fourth quarter ended. So usually you see an, a gain of 2.8% in earnings estimates from the end of the fourth quarter to the, uh, to the uh, start of, or into earnings season. Uh, but this time around, we've seen a 1.7% drop and that's only happened uh, during recessions. Um, and so there, there's a lot of people, you know, again, this fits the narrative that we have going on about uh, how bad uh, earnings season is. What's interesting to me is seeing um, you're starting to see a lot of pushback against the uh, the uh, um, kind of dour earnings setup. Um, you know, people have pointed to this and said, "Well, there's this is the reason that uh, you know the stock market deserves to drop, as if you know the stock market does anything that we want." Um, but Lori Calvacino over at RBC, you know, says that uh, the the market has actually started looking ahead to 2024, and that we're actually in the process. Of what she calls it, it, she calls it a slide bottoming process in 2023 earnings forecasts. Um, usually this happens at the beginning of the year um, in up through March and April. Um, and then, uh, you know, those those forecasts end up bottoming and then you start getting the pickup again. Um, and so we'd be really on schedule for that. And the other thing she says is that the stock prices tend to bottom three to six months before the forecast do, which again would make the market on schedule or this market rally arriving right on schedule. Um, so we're going to keep hearing this argument going back and forth between uh, people who think that uh, the er that earnings um, are going to keep declining, uh, that uh, something bad is around the corner, and those that are uh, looking out a little bit further and seeing uh, and are a little more optimistic on what the future holds. I, it's rare to see an unsloppy bottom in anything in the market, isn't it? <laughs> It's, it's very true. <laughs> so, I like that phrase, though. Okay, on to game time. We have to start today with DraftKings in honor of yesterday's Super Bowl. And I don't know if you folks were rooting for the Eagles or the Chiefs, but I was rooting for Rihanna not to fall off that flying platform. That was quite a performance. Wow. So it was also a big day for online gaming. DraftKings reports on Thursday. What do we expect from DraftKings? Well, I, th I think the, the good news, you know, they got a little bit of good news um, last week when MGM reported. Um, they saw uh, strong growth at uh, BetMGM online. Uh, you know, that's MGM's online gambling division where uh, same-store sales were up 51% uh, or so. Um, and the, um, the right, right now, they're basically going to be, you know, they're not making money. They're... Um, uh, they're supposed to report a loss of 61 cents. The good news is that would be smaller than their loss of 80 cents uh, a share in the um, uh, same quarter a year ago. 
sales are supposed to have risen to nearly 800 million uh, from about 473 million um, one year ago. Uh, but the focus is really going to be on the potential to getting profit uh, profitable. That's what the market wants to see. And so any comments that the company makes on those uh, on, on that potential and whether they can actually get to profitability, they were have been expecting a break even by fiscal 2024. Um, that's really going to be the focus of this call, not so much whether they can beat uh, these numbers, but whether the trend is going in the right uh, direction. There's going to also be an interesting trade off between what the stock has done this year, which is gain about 30%. That was through Friday's close. Um, and what they've done over the past 12 months, which has dropped 31%. Um, so it's been a very weak stock over the long term, but very, uh, very strong to start off the year. So I'll have to see how that plays out. Okay, Frank, when you look at the chart, what do you see? For I think Ben, because of a good point. I mean, if you take it back to you know, the, the low from late December to the recent high, you're talking about almost a 70% move, right? And so these are, you know, all these percentage moves are very strong in these most beaten up areas. But I think the most important thing that's going on with the stock that I see <clears throat> is that just by moving sideways since really last March, right? It's, it's, it's 200 day moving average, which is the long-term indicator of trend. That has been moving a little over quite some time <clears throat> has flatlined and has really started just to move higher just a bit, right? And so, when you a, a good scenario for an uptrend is the following characteristic: an uptrending 200-day moving average, and a stock that continues to trade above that 200-day moving average. Now, again, I anticipate this being whipsawed more, but if this type, if a name like DraftKings is going to come back, those are the type of characteristics you'd like to see going forward. Okay. Thank you. So let's now look at some streaming stocks. There was a lot of um, a lot of Tubi ads last night on the Super Bowl, but Roku is the name to watch this week. The company reports on Wednesday, and for that matter, Paramount Global reports on Thursday. So we'll start with Roku. Ben, what's the expectation here? I just want to say those Tubi ads uh, cracked me up. I was uh, you know watching the the end of the game uh, in a bar and saw you know when those 2b ads came out and there were, were people who thought that uh you know they'd actually switched the channel um and a lot of anger in there for a few for a few seconds until they realized it was an ad um regarding roku this is another one of those stocks that is uh, just been hammered um over the past 12 months it's down 67 percent um even though it's gained 35 percent this year um and, and that's really to see what's going on just by looking at the the earnings um last year um for this quarter they uh, had a profit of 17 cents. Uh, this uh, year, they're going to lose $1.72. Uh, they're expected to lose $1.72. Even though sales have risen uh, 3.1 to $3.1 billion, that was that's versus $2.8 billion. Um, the, the good news is that investor expectations have been lowered. Uh, that was helped by uh, you know some of the problems with uh, that you saw at Alphabet, at Snap, and others. Um, and you know we all know that there are there were ad problems in during the fourth quarter. Um, the, there still is the possibility, though, that um, the Roku is forced to uh, lower its guidance, um, and that, of course, could be a problem because um, you know it's, it's already not expecting great things. Um, but this is an example of another company that just needs to find a way to get itself uh, back to profitability. And Paramount is the subject of a new book by James Stewart. We wrote about it in this weekend's magazine. What's on tap at Paramount? 
Well, it, it's down um, 40% over the last 12 months, but up 28% uh, this year. So we're hearing this theme here that all these stocks that got beaten up uh, last year are doing pretty well. Their earnings are supposed to slip a little bit to 24 cents from 26 cents. Um, sales are going to come in expected to around 8.2 billion, which would be up slightly from 8 billion. And we're going to, I think people are listening for the same things they listen to from the likes of Netflix and from the likes of, um, from, uh, from Disney, is that the real problem here is that these companies are spending a ton. Um, so even though the sales are going up, profits are going down. Um, and so, I think people are going to listen uh, for, um, you know, whether or not uh, they're going to be able to cut those costs. Um, and I, I just want to say that I thought their Super Bowl ad was very weird, where you had Sylvester Stallone climbing on a Mount Rushmore-esque Sylvester Stallone face, um, getting to his nose and then being knocked off by a sneeze. All very weird. Um, but this is all about this, the, that, that whole battle between streaming, which they were which Paramount Global was pushing very uh, hard last night on the Super Bowl, but also their linear TV business. Uh, they own CBS and how that's going to keep doing is it, how much revenue is Acavale produced and how much is uh, streaming stealing from it without getting profitable yet. So everyone's going to be listening for that push pull to see how the company is done. I have to admit, I missed the ad and it sounds oh. like a good thing. It's a very odd one. <laughs> <laughs> so Frank, when you look at, at, the charts. We can talk about Roku and Paramount, or you can tell me about media companies in general. What do you see? Well, it's a good question because a lot of them do look the same chart-wise, but I would say Paramount caught my eye a little bit more only because, you know, I'm talking about the bottom information that the S&P has put into place, and Paramount actually started this process a little bit before some of the other ones have. Like Roku just seems to me to be in a distinct downtrend right now, it just needs to stop going down, right? At this point, and we don't. I think you need more time for that. Paramount, you know, last made a low in November. And since that point, if I'm looking at this from, say, the beginning of October, I can make the case that it broke out from a key buying information at the middle of January, spiked, almost hit the target from that, and then came back down, and, and so far has held that breakout point. And that's very key, because that is. The type of thing we need to see going forward from the likes of Paramount, really any stock, is where you know breakout attempts are going to be retraced. It's a matter of holding that that breakout point in the hopes of forming another higher low, and again, taking all that into account and having a much bigger foundation than being built to leverage. All right, now I'm going to reverse our pattern. Our next stock is Deer, the agricultural machinery giant that is going digital in many ways. I'm going to ask Frank to opine on the stock first, excuse me, on the chart first, and then we'll have Ben talk about the stock. Okay. Well, I think, you know, it's kind of sloppy looking if you, if you look at it just, um, you know, from the last year or so. But what strikes me is that it bottomed, bottomed a lot before many other stocks did, right, looking at July back then. And so from that point, it's continuing to ride the same uptrend line that it hit in September and, again, just two weeks ago. Right. And if you just blow that up a little bit more, you can make the case that, you know, a good response to earnings, you get it back near its recent highs, 450. And you don't hear that too often, right, especially from the growth area, which is not growth, but in terms of um, getting closer to highs. And I think this is a type of, of name if you want to go for relative strength, right, versus the entire market this is clearly one of them I would like to see continue. Now, Ben, tell us about the earnings that. Sure. This week. 
So um, earnings are supposed to dip uh, just a little bit to uh, $7.20 uh, from $7.44. Um, sales of uh, $13.8 billion, uh, that's versus $14.35 billion. Um, what's interesting here is that uh, just how optimistic some of the analysts are. Uh, D.A. Davidson has pointed out that uh, they call the setup favorable. Um, and they think it's compete against both the consensus and um, perhaps even the, the prior year. What they said noted is that um, deer has been had strong production rates, um, and uh, that that should uh, have continued into the current quarter. Um, and also that uh, there was a work stoppage last year, which is going to make the year-over-year -year comparisons a lot easier. Um, and then uh, the USDA um, issued a farm income forecast, and that was also strong. So you put all that together, and here's a stock that you know it, it held up pretty well over the last 12 months. I think it was down just 6.4. It was up 6.4 percent, um, and it was a very tough market. Um, but I think, as, as Frank was noting, is if, if it can deliver this kind of good news, um, I think it would be you know very good for a stock that people have probably been watching and thinking about carefully, especially as it makes this transition um, to what it's seeing as sort of a tech company or at least applying tech to what has traditionally been a pretty you know staid tractor business um but uh whenever you talk to people about the future of farming you talk to esg investors uh, even even tech investors you know deer is making a lot of noise in that area and I, I think you can start building on that excitement a bit deer was a pick we should note at this year's barons roundtable by todd alston of parnassus investments and Bill Priest, also on our roundtable, said he thinks of the company as software as a service plus iron. And I kind of like that. They're definitely adding a lot of digital features to their machinery. So let's go through one more, and then I'm going to take some listener questions. Hertz, the car rental company, was a stock pick in this past weekend's Barron's. Our colleague Andrew Barry is optimistic about the company's prospects. Avis, its competitor, reports today, is there a reason to be upbeat about Avis too? What do you think, Ben? Um, JP Morgan certainly mm -hmm. thinks so. Uh, you know, they have an outperform rating on the stock, even though they have cut their estimates. Um, those estimates were cut largely because of um, falling used car prices. Um, when a, a used car company, they need to sell their older cars and buy new ones, and the amount that they get for those used cars um, gets put into the earnings and can can impact things and so they've, they've lowered their estimates but they actually see five reasons to really like avis right here one is that they think that there's going to be continued demand for rental cars um and uh, as the economy continues this recovery from COVID 19 they expect revenues to to normalize because it's not going to be quite as crazy as it had been, but they do think that um, they're going to stabilize at a um, pretty high level. Um, and uh, Avis also has a strong balance sheet, and they think that uh, the company's uh, free cash flow and uh, earnings are strong enough to allow them to uh, do things like buybacks. Um, so JP Morgan is very optimistic um, about, about Avis uh, in the long term. And what about you, Frank? You know, this has been very volatile, especially for a very high price stock, <clears throat> the way it is. And it looks similar to some others, again, um, having formed a bullish formation over the last few weeks, it broke out you know, very vividly, basically hit the target near around 236, 37. So <clears throat> regarding it reporting, I would like to see just in terms of risk management, 
if it pulls back at all, holding near around 200. You know, that's a round number significance. So that that holds a lot of water is also was a spot where it just broke out from. So if anything, if it can do that and make its way back up to 250, then you can make the case that this could be a much bigger multi-month formation. But again, this is a little bit volatile for me right now. Okay, got it. So we have a couple of questions about various charts and I've, I've got some more myself. We'll start with some of our listeners. Fuad wants to know about Meta, that's, that's Meta Platforms, formerly known as Facebook. What do you see in that chart? <clears throat> Meta, I find extremely important and interesting because it was one of the first ones we identified a cap thesis as a potential big growth name that could turn around uh, at, the, at the end of last year and then this year. It's very important because it's the biggest component within the XLC communications ETF, which had a really hard time, topped out in September 2021 before anything else did from a large cap perspective. And that was really all meta, Facebook back then, right? And so right now we know about the huge earnings gap up. And again, it's been forming these bullish patterns. I think holding this gap is really important because through last week, when things were looking a little bit tough for the market overall, especially growth areas, when Alphabet came out and got hit two days in a row, they eventually hit meta, but now it looks like it wants to establish a new support level above that that gap. And that's an important thing to do because again, being such a huge component of the XLC, identify a much bigger pattern in that ETF as well is going to be really critical for Meta to do what it can because I would say Alphabet, of course, is, doesn't look as good at the moment. Okay, what about Berkshire Hathaway? One second with that one. That one, you know, like many other financials, this is interesting because, you know, broke out, it got above its most recent high in August um, in early November, right? And from that time, it's been consolidating. So maybe it's underperformed other areas over the last three or four months, but this is a type of pattern I look for where you have a kind of quote unquote boring training range after a good move. Right, and people are looking elsewhere, but this to me looks like it's biding its time for another potential breakout above 320. And we could be finding out uh, what stocks uh, Berkshire was buying. Um, I think it's either tonight or tomorrow um, that filing should be out. Um, and Andrew uh, Barry will be covering that for us, which could be interesting. Always, always interesting to find out what Berkshire bought and sold in any given quarter, for sure. All right, totally different corner of investment or or whatever. David wants to know about your technical review of Bitcoin. Bitcoin, yeah. I talk about that one a lot uh, in, in my pieces uh, throughout the uh, throughout the day and, and years. So I think that it's very important, I think, right now for it to hold about, say, 21,500 uh, 21, thereabouts, right? It's very volatile, of course, and so it can move around uh, a lot. But what that does is, if you look at it, that's an area where I struggled with earlier, had the big spike. And what really impressed me the most about Bitcoin initially after that spike was that it really just went sideways, right, for three or four weeks. As it's one indicator that we look at for momentum, uh, the 14 day RSI people may be familiar with, uh, when it gets above 70, that's an overbought level, right? And this was almost hit 90, right? And it got to the point where it is held there. And so at first glance, that's an alarming level of an indicator because you know we can't hold there forever. But one of the most interesting charts that I that I, I think I put out over the last 
few months was that if you go back in time over the last say six or seven years when bitcoin had its biggest runs talking about really you know multi-year runs all of them started with an explosive move that produced an rsi reading around 90 right now we know it didn't stay there for that point but that just kind of kick-started things for these bigger runs to happen and so when does that usually occur that usually occurs after news is really bad uh, sentiment is really bad and think about when all this has happened right and when sentiment couldn't get any worse all of a sudden it you know we see a turn so i think this is going to be an important one to look at going forward just because i don't think sentiment is still too excited about it and again just seeing how those moves have started in the past gets me interested all right are you also interested in tesla <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, rocket fuel. For, right. well, they I tend to go that. together in some people's minds. Yeah, exactly. I would say Tesla, you know, I always find it difficult to gauge sentiment sometimes because there's all different ways of looking at it. But in terms of you know, traders, real traders' appetite for risk, <clears throat> I think Tesla is a very good gauge for that, right? And you can see what it did just in, in two months' time, went from 200 to 100 to back to 200. And so I find it very difficult to to trade something like that if you're not trying to chase it at either side. But again, if I look at this and bring it back to say November, the, the best case scenario I see for this going forward, if it can just consolidate more underneath or around 200, then you could look at that and say, maybe this is an actual bullish pattern, a very volatile one, but one that could, that could, could work. So again, what we need to see is next pullback not being too severe. You need a higher low. Again, I keep on saying that, but th those are really, that's the building block for bullish formation. And that could get people interested that missed this, right? But I don't want to see anyone chasing this as it, if it, this continues. Like it's just, it's just too volatile to, you know, either short it when it's going really lower, you know, at a, at a high clip or buy it when it's streaming higher. You want to wait for it to settle down and see the next pattern develop. Good luck. Yeah. So we have a question for Ben. Mike wants to know, he notes that value stocks beat the S&P 500. This year, value stocks have included some washed out tech names from 2022. And he wants to know what you think is likely to do better this year, value or growth. Thought on that, yeah, I'm actually agnostic on, um, on style this year. Um, I, I think this is more the kind of year where uh, we're going to really have to co focus on, on the companies themselves. I think we saw a good um, example of that with... Uh, um, with a, it, it was two stocks I mentioned, Meta and um, Alphabet, where um, right now Meta is uh, seems to be firing on all cylinders in a way that it hasn't in a while, while um, Alphabet is uh, um, is sinking due to issues around ChatGPT regulation and, and whatnot. And both of them are in the same sector. Uh, they're both uh, in that communications uh, services sector. Um, I think they both would be considered uh, value growth at this point, and yet they're um, they're they're heading in different directions. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that uh, this year, where it's it's about um, how companies differentiate themselves from each other more than it is uh, any particular style uh, one over the other. I don't know if they call that a stock picker's market, but it sounds like that to me. I, I hate that term. So I'm not I know. I know. <laughs> okay. Last question I'm going to pose to Frank. You've gone through a lot of charts today and, and a lot of ways you look at them. How do you think a, an individual investor who is not a CNP, not well-versed in technical analysis, can use it to understand the setup for different companies and, and different assets across the spectrum? It's a great question. I think 
it's most useful for risk management. And the reason why I say this is because anytime, and I put myself in this category as well, <clears throat> when you purchase a stock, you know, the, the, the purchase price is in your head, right? And you have emotional attachment to it, right? And so the, the key to <clears throat> long-term trading success is managing risk and managing your emotions, right? So if you can look at, I would say it's easy to, or as simple as identifying a previous higher low from that point of sale, maybe you bought a stock <clears throat> at a hundred dollars a share, and you noticed that it broke out from say uh, ninety six dollars, and below that, there's not much support to identify. Well, you you really want it to go to two hundred, of course, but you know what is what, what's the downside risk? Well, a lot lower. So if you just put a line in, put a stop loss in, and have that managed for you, that's how you remove emotion, right? And in terms of talking about different indicators and all that, there are so many out there. But I think determining, you know, the long-term trend is very important. Again, I think it's really important now because so many stocks fell underneath their long-term 200-day moving averages. Seeing which ones come back and stay above those lines is going to be important for relative strength purposes going forward. Mm -hmm. So the 200-day moving average is a key indicator. Yeah, I think more so for... Um, identifying a long-term trend as opposed to support and resistance, even though that's used sometimes. But I like it more to identify, you know, if you're talking about the stocks that, that stayed above rising 200-day moving average last year, they all outperformed, right? So that alone would, would tell you which ones are doing well and which ones are not. It's a good start for a beginner. Yes, ma'am. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Interesting conversation. And thank you, Ben, as always. And we will have to put an end to today's conversation, but tomorrow on Barron's Live, come back to learn about what's ahead for municipal bonds in 2023. Barron's senior writer, Lauren Foster, will be speaking with James Darcy, a senior portfolio manager for the municipal bond desk within Vanguard's fixed income group. Thanks again, Frank and Ben. Thanks to our listeners. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.